there's been an interesting recurring situation for many of our guests. For many of them, they found healing in part through doctors, counselors, therapists, and medication. But prior to that point, they faced stigmas. And there's actually been a long tension between faith and science, a stronghold of resistance against the idea of seeking healing in ways other than trusting God. And before this healing season, I actually wanted to have a conversation with a believer who is also a doctor to figure out how they tread that difficult space. In fact, there is one name that's been on my mind for years, and that's my friend and children's pediatrician, Dr. Ramesh Wijasuriya. Ramesh is not just a friend, not just a skilled doctor, but also a strong believer and an elder at my church. And so if there's anyone that I knew who was walking in that space and who could speak with authenticity, it would be him. And the last two years have not been easy for him and for others like him, who are having to not just tread this tension, but also the tension brought on by a pandemic and having to really invest way above and beyond what they might have ever expected. And so I'm really grateful for this conversation and for Ramesh's time. And I want to challenge you in the same way that I challenge you in Ebony's episode. That regardless of what you think or believe, Ramesh is a friend of mine. And Ramesh is sharing from his experience, from his understanding, and sharing his heart. And I want you to stay at the table. Listen to his heart. Consider the ways that God has equipped him to see the world. And then consider what that might mean moving forward. Because Ramesh's story and his experience matter. But he's also coming with a unique vantage point that is important in this conversation. You're listening to episode 83 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for my friend Ramesh. Um, I thank you for who you've made him to be. I thank you for the ways that you've used him in our community, in our city and beyond. And so I just thank you for all that he brings to the table just in everyday life. But I also thank you for what you could end up doing through this conversation today. We just want to give it to you. We thank you that you choose to work in this way but we want to release our thoughts, our expectations, our ideas, and we just invite you to guide our words wherever you want to guide them. And all of this, we pray that it would be for your glory, but also we know that you can do powerful things through simple words. I want to pray in his holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So Ramesh, I'm very excited to see you. I was trying to find a document that I had somewhere where I started listing out Three years ago, people I would want to have on the podcast, and you are one of them for so many reasons, but I just love you. And I'll get more into this in a moment about why I think this time is going to be really important to this season of the podcast. But first, I've been doing this game. It's an improv game for me. It's a very simple thing for the guest where I want to find a way for the guest to quickly just share in a fun way who they are. But the improv part is I don't have a list that I choose from. <laughs> sometimes it goes well, sometimes it, it does not. But today I have one for you because what I was thinking about, we've known each other for like 12 years or so. Mm-hmm. And we used to have these men's retreats. And if I remember correctly, you were very athletic in those, like we would go out and play some kind of like flag football or something. So here's yours. I have just opened up a pack of sports trading cards. And I find one and it's got Ramesh on there and you're like posing, you're in an action mode. And I turn to the back and it's got a short little bio about who you are. 
What does the back of the Ramesh trading card say? It's <laughs> uh, a good question, Paul. Um, <laughs> man, so short bio. So very quick and agile, but uh, but small and nimble, not <laughs> large and strong. And a player who understands the concepts of the game, but but is not usually in the spotlight, is usually assisting others. I love it. <laughs> and that last part especially speaks well to you. Like I've always known you as someone who is doing important things, whether it's being a doctor, being an elder, being a father, being a husband, like doing important things. You have never been one to crave and desire the spotlight to like, turn it, look at me, which it just speaks a lot to who you are. So I love your answer. I'm keeping your card. It's going to be worth something one day. I'm going to frame it. So you are a doctor. So tell me a little bit about your functional role. What is it that you do? Because it's important to this conversation we're having today. Yeah, so I'm a general pediatrician at VCU, which is the academic center here in Richmond. So general pediatrics is just the clinical, like my technical skill and it's part of my job. And that is just seeing kids and being in an academic center with that. It's a little bit different from being in like a private practice. And probably the main difference there is that I have and see patients that there's probably like 30 or 40% of my patients that have serious medical illnesses. Whereas if you're in a private practice, probably 90 or 95% would be relatively healthy kids. And then you maybe have five or 10%. But because I'm connected in an academic medical center, we tend to get a larger percentage and take care of a larger percentage of kids who have complicated medical issues, whether that's things relating to chronic pulmonary issues or kids who were born with congenital heart defects or kids who are premature. And that's just because those kids need multiple specialties involved. And so they end up landing at an academic medical center. So that's my medical part of my job. But then the other hats that are part of working at a medical center is obviously there's a teaching hat. Part of my job day in and day out is teaching residents and medical students. Some of that is in lecture type ways, but a lot of it is just in the apprenticeship model that is the way that the medical system works when it comes to learners and teachers. I'm sort of doing that as I do my work. And then there's also two other hats that you're usually participating in when you're an academic physician. One is research, and that is not a significant part of my career. There are people that I work with where that is like the main part of their career. I do stuff in that area, but I am usually uh, doing it as an add-on to someone else who's driving the research, whatever the research project is. I am also, my title, part of my title is division chair, which is basically, I'm just like a leader for my team, right? In like business lingo, that would almost be like a VP or something. Like I have a team of about 39 physicians and nurse practitioners along with a bunch of nurses. And so I am trying to help keep that team as healthy as possible and also figure out where we're going and how we want to expand and grow and provide great services to our families and our children. Yeah, that's a lot. Here's why I love that you shared all that. There's a lot of reasons that I'm excited you're on, but one of them is over the course of the conversations that I've had in this season, there has been this recurring theme around trepidation involving medication, not necessarily from the guest speaking, but stigmas that they've hit as they've been trying to find how they can get healing, how they can get healthy. A number of the guests have been in environments, and particularly it's often faith-based environments where the idea of medication is looked at negatively. So I've known that this is something I've wanted to tap into. Like, how do we engage the topic of healing from like a health professional standpoint? 
And so you're definitely qualified to speak on that from the health professional standpoint. You're doing the work, <laughs> but you're also engaging in some harder cases than you might normally if you're in a different setting. You're also, even if you're not doing the full research, you're engaged in the research. And as a leader, you're having to lead the way on how do we navigate all of this. But on top of that, you're also an elder of a church. So from a spiritual level, you're bringing that element too. You're having to marry these often forced apart worlds. I couldn't think of anyone I would want more to speak on this. And I don't know exactly where I want to go in the conversation. So I think I just want to jump right into the reality that you are having to live in these two spaces of your faith is a huge part of who you are. And being a doctor is a huge part of what you functionally do many hours of the week. So what has that been like for you in general, or even in the past few years to navigate that space? Yeah, I mean, it's a really important question. And I think sort of the long arc of the answer is, I think it's a theological answer. And it's been a theological journey for me. So I think because a lot of times we talk and come to understand our faith in a primarily like we talk about spirit and body and we think of them as separate, we then start thinking it's either or. And I think that's understandable. I don't think that's crazy, but I, and I think it's, it's very complex to figure out how those two things are connected. But I think it is really important theologically that we begin with a very clear understanding that God created our bodies and he created our souls. He didn't just create our spirits. He created an embodiment for our spirits to live within. And he created both of those things. And part of our body is our mind. And, the, and we're going to, you know, we'll get into the science. And none of those things are necessarily superior to the other. But they are all part of his created order when it comes to human beings. When you talk about faith and reason or faith and science, they are often pitted against each other. And I think we often feel the tension even our, in our own lives. Like, should I be praying harder for my headache to go away? Or should I take ibuprofen, right? Like, even that simple of a thing. And that question, while it seems a little bit ridiculous, because most of us sort of are like, oh, I'll take medicine for headache. At some level, that question is a question that is important to sort of answer and grapple with and figure out where do I land on that? But I think there is a problem in that question, the fact that we even ask it, and that has to do with how we've been theologically formed. You know, going into med school, lots of these questions arose, going into residency, becoming a practicing physician. There was a lot of wrestling around, all right, so what does it look like to pray for someone and what does it look like to give them medicine and is one opposed to the other? And I will say over time to like sort of try to connect the two things, what I have come to believe is that prayer, if I'm praying for something, it can be answered in a multitude of ways, right? So if I'm praying for God to support me and for God to show me love, it may be that I feel God's love like just by myself sitting on a mountaintop. Uh, but a lot of times it means that Paul Granger shows up or one of my other friends shows up and like cares for me in a way that I was not expecting. And that is a physical manifestation of God's love, right? In the same way, prayer for healing might look like my body is miraculously healed. I experienced that. But it can also look like a scientist somewhere on the other side of the world or somewhere 100 years ago being helped by the Lord, whether or not he or she knew it to come up with a way that our bodies can be healed because of scientific discoveries. Both of those are answers to prayer. And it's not that one is better and one is worse or one is superior to the other. 
They are actually both God at work in this world. That is a really important concept, I think, that some of the leading scientists in the world, I mean, the head of the NIH currently, um, Francis Collins, is a believer who has had to and has, I mean, even like he has been a believer for a long time, and he basically was in charge of the Human Genome Project. He views the Human Genome Project as a way to understand God more, not as a way to compete with God. That is something that is really important for us, not only in science, but just as a faith community to understand and think about. Yeah, that's really good. I think you're hitting on something really important there. I was actually pulling up video. There's a podcast that Phil Vischer, who did Veggie Tales, does called the Holy Post podcast. But I'd seen recently that he had interviewed Dr. Francis Collins. He does process. I ended up listening to the episode and hearing him process having to live in that tension was really intriguing. And Phil made a very good point. And he's like, you're not just some everyday doctor. <laughs> like, You're in a pretty significant position. And you're also striving to be authentic to your faith. And so we need to take notice of that. What does that mean for how you understand the world and how you understand God? But she said something to the effect of how it's like pitting ourselves against God. And I think that is the fear that some people have. If I pray, then I'm trusting God. But if I do anything else, then I'm trying to solve this in my own power. And what you're saying is that isn't necessarily the case, that sometimes your act of trusting God is trusting the doctor that God has equipped with the knowledge to give you the right medicine or to create the medicine. How do you personally navigate that tension? Because that's a hard tension to go through. Like for you, what does that look like to tread that space and to stay in a place of being confident in who you believe God to be and who he's created you to be? So I think one of the important things, and I'm going to just make one comment about the statement you made, which I think was accurate as far as reflecting back to me what you heard me say, but then, and then answer your current question. So, you know, when we think about prayer, prayer for, in some way, a spiritual and almost a miraculous intervention, as opposed to praying for something more concrete as a way of God showing up. While I do think there can be an, an understanding like this is more spiritual and this is not, the danger is actually the same for both of it. They are both dangerous because part of what we start becoming is we become God. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm praying for something spiritual, then the danger, which I think we at times fall into and don't really know how to like theologically unpack is, well, so what happens if I don't pray? Right. And so it's like I'm then controlling God over here is like I'm starting to believe that humans can do this. And I'm do I really need God? Either way, we end up in dangerous positions of replacing God and not remembering who sort of is in control and who is holding all of us. So I just think that's important because I think sometimes people, including myself, there can be times when I'm feeling very faithful mm -hmm. and I start sort of going off this edge of like, because my faith is so big, that is what is actually causing God to act. And there is clearly throughout scripture, even there's this danger of how we can slowly go off the deep end in replacing God in that way. Over here on the other side of like, well, what does it look like to pray for more concrete, palpable expressions of God's activity in our world? I think the key there, and when I'm in my healthier places, this is what I sort of am leaning into. And when I'm in my unhealthy places, I'm not leaning here. But the healthier version of that, married to faith, is I'm seeing those things as God's action. 
as opposed to my action or any other human's action, right? And what it is leading me to is an expanded awe of how God works in and through the world. And human beings being, in, in my theological understanding, human beings in their wholeness, both their physical being, their mental being, their spiritual being, are the most beautiful thing that God ever created and the most complex thing that God ever created. And the thing that most reflects God, what scripture tells us is when he created man, it was like he saw it was good and it was like the closest representation of his being. And that is in all of his being. And so when human beings do amazing things in whatever way, athletically, scientifically, the way we care for each other, it is a reflection of God, whether or not that human being or human beings understand that, acknowledge it, even believe it. What I believe is it is that. When I'm thinking and feeling and seeing correctly, uh, that's how I experience the amazing things that human scientists have done over the course of human history, right? Whether that's the fact that we're both wearing glasses and someone figured out literally their lenses that would allow us to physically see that for most of human history, people did not have that. And once your eyesight started failing, you became more and more blind. Two, when you have cancer, now we have drugs that can heal, can literally kill the cancer and allow the human being to live. Two, present day things that are around scientifically that we've been able to provide for like this pandemic. But the unhealthy part of me can go into like, man, I just need to depend on human beings. And Francis Collins is amazing. The healthy part of me is like, man, God created Francis Collins. And I'm so glad that he's using this human being to provide some level of redemption and restoration in this world. But it's not Francis Collins. It's God's creation. Right. But I think that's about how I'm seeing things, not about the thing, how I'm seeing and experiencing and understanding things. And I like literally in the course of a day or even in the course of 30 minutes, I can go from more healthy to unhealthy on my perspective of that. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that's come up in many of the conversations too, even beyond this season, is learning to accept the reality of the journey element of walking with God versus the arrival. Mm -hmm. Now I understand this. Now I'm good. Now I never have doubts. Now I never waver or vacillate. Right. It's less about, is your mind always exactly right? And more about, am I continuing to step forward? Yeah. Which you've been doing and been doing in some hard contexts and hard moments. And that actually leads to one thing I wanted to ask. And this question could lead to a very heavy answer or not. So you could decide how heavy you make it. So I was on a podcast with someone who identifies as an atheist. And one of his big things is he can't understand how Christians can say that God is good when he allows bad things to happen. And in the conversation I shared about Mother Teresa, and she has a journal that she wrote of just hefty doubts because she's in the house of the dying and she's constantly hearing people praying for someone to be healed and then they aren't. And for every one healing, maybe she sees 99 deaths. And I shared that had to be such a heavy thing for her. And yet she continued to step forward, right? So one thing you mentioned at the start is that your role is unique being in VCU in that your percentage of really serious cases is higher than it would normally be if you were in private practice. And it's not just serious cases, it's serious cases in children, which always hits us a little harder. I guess my broad question is, and you can take it wherever you want to take it, this topic of healing is a tricky one, a difficult one. 
you know, does God always totally heal all the time if our faith is high enough? Does God sometimes not heal because he's doing something else? But you're having to exist in a different place than I am. I may have singular moments where I'm navigating this topic, but you are daily encountering people who are in hard situations. So as a doctor, as a strong believer, how are you navigating the topic of healing? How do you understand it? How do you process it? Yeah. So very early on, like early on in my career, in my training, there were a number of situations that sort of brought the question to like a a razor edge, you know, to like a very sharp point. Yeah. There are these things we have in our lives, but then within, because of my job that like are like sort of haunting moments. Right. And one of them for me medically was the first time I was taking care of a baby in the NICU and the baby was born without a brain. Hmm. The baby was born, had a brain stem, which is all a baby needs in order to like breathe and even to eat, but had no brain other than that. Like just wasn't there. And this happens. It's not common. It's very rare, but it does happen. For some reason, some of this may be genetic. There are different reasons why it might happen, but like things don't form all the way in certain babies' bodies when they're by the time they come out. And the parent was a person of faith and was pleading with us to pray for a brain. You know, you're there, you know, as a physician in a science, like I understand, I've learned all the medical stuff about how this happens. And and I'm looking at pictures like CT scans with literally there is a skull with no brain in it. And I also know my faith and I know about miracles. And it felt like, what do I really believe, right? How can I authentically say I'm going to pray? Do I really believe what I'm praying, et cetera? What can I tell this woman? The reason this sort of haunts me or like brought a lot of things to a point was it just, it brings up a lot of things we've already talked about, like some of your earlier questions even, in like a human being in a moment. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to reconcile it. I didn't know how to hold those things together. And I, I did start, I prayed, I told her I would pray, but I had to like wrestle with what do I believe? And so one of the things over time, and this was not like, it, I didn't like have this like aha moment in that moment. I was like, oh, here's the answer. But over time, those sorts of situations have led me to increasingly sort of understand that when we talk about the fall and we talk about redemption, like fall of the world. So this is like, like way up here. Uh, and then these moments where I'm looking at a babe without her brain. And I'm thinking of that as like a manifestation in this particular moment of the brokenness of the world. And I hate it. And I hate it for all the reasons that that is terrible. And I want it to be different. And I believe God does not want it to be so. But I also believe and like not all of this will be fixed here. And so when I pray for wholeness, I would love for a miracle to occur. And maybe I'll experience that at some point. And I believe that it's possible. I believe God is capable But on this side of heaven or the return of Christ, even if that baby got a brain back, that baby would then die at some point on this side of heaven. It's not eternal redemption here. And so this thing we're praying for is for these moments where we hope God breaks in in unique and miraculous ways. But we know that we're living still in a broken world. And so then I think about like, what is this? Like I'm praying for wholeness eternally, even though I would love for to see some of it right now. 
when I'm in my healthier places, my hope is not actually in whether or not the, like I get to see the redemption. My hope is in the fact that I believe that redemption is the final word. In my better moments of believing, I hope that more and more and sort of believe that more and more with time, but I still go through my ups and downs and trying to understand what that means in, in moments or even there are seasons where it's like, I don't like, do I really believe that? You know, um, but I think that kingdom vision in our circles, we talk a lot about the kingdom vision of community as far as like what that's going to look like, given the brokenness of the world in like, we talk about the body as a communal body. Here's what we wish for now. And we sort of sometimes taste it and then it breaks and we taste it and it breaks. And then we believe that it's still worth fighting for because one day it will be so. I believe that is true also of, of individual physical bodies. Yeah, we sort of live with that hope and it doesn't mean we're going to see it here. I mean, I think this is a little bit of a tangent and it's a very, this just is a complicated tangent, but I think it's part of my brain goes here and I just want to follow it, not because I have an answer, but I just think it's an important thing for us to be spiritually asking. So there's also a really important question for us and for me to ask around what does wholeness mean? Hmm. You know, I think we sort of say, oh, one day, like my physical body will be whole, like all the, like, the broken things or whatever. And we have this vision, like in some way we're like, ah, like what's going to happen? You know, Paul will one day basically be like LeBron James. Like that's what it'll mean for Paul to be whole. You know, like we sort of have this, like, here's the ideal human being. Mm -hmm. And we have this physical specimen and he'll have like LeBron James's body and he'll have Francis Collins' brain and he'll have Mother Teresa's love. And that will be like, that's what Paul Granger being whole is. And I think there is significant danger and just like wrongness in that. So, and, and one of the things that I think it's important for us to think about is there are patients I take care of where the child might have something like uh, Down syndrome, trisomy 21, right? When we pray for wholeness for that human being, are we saying that they would not have trisomy 21 in heaven? And if so, what does that mean? Because maybe it's that we should all have trisomy 21 because there are certain things that the gene, something about the makeup of that makes them actually more loving and caring than most of the average human being who does not have trisomy 21 is. And so there's this, yeah, there's this really important vision of like, what does it even mean to like be whole? And are we talking about being whole for what God created you to be? Or are we sometimes like talking about like, here's the ideal and we're like, that's what it means to be whole. And I think it is important that we lean into our vision and understanding of one another individually and even communities and cultures and understand like, what has God created them to be? not here's the ideal for everyone. That's a very complicated, I mean, I've wrestled with that a lot, like even when I'm prayed for patients and families. You hit on something incredibly important and even relevant to thoughts that I have because we have a mutual friend and one of their children has Down syndrome. And this friend was telling me about a time that somebody that is working to have a strong faith said to them, well, hey, we can pray that the Down syndrome would go away. And my friend really wrestled with this because it was clear to him in that moment that they both saw the child in very different ways. Yeah. This other person saw this child as a child that has a problem that needs to be removed. And my friend saw that child as his son that he loves deeply, that is full of life and full of joy and full of hope and does not need to be fixed right. in the way that, and like, and I, when he was telling me the story, it, it really hit me because we don't think about it like that until we have to think about it right. Yeah. Yeah. But that really taps into a 
deeper level of theology that if we really want to understand healing more, we have to press into yeah. because it all hits at what's the goal. Yeah. And one verse that's come up in several of the episodes is the passage about the Apostle Paul asking for the thorn to be removed. And so whether this was a physical or mental or emotional, whatever thorn this was, the end result was he wasn't fixed in the way that he wanted to be fixed because God was actually bringing about a wholeness that the Apostle Paul didn't even realize he needed. Yeah. Part of that dealt with conceit <laughs> and God knew the way in which he could resist becoming as proud as he would in and of himself is if he was whole in his understanding. But I mean, this is a recurring theme we see that our idea of the destination is not the same as God's idea yeah. of where he's trying to get us. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. I feel like there's so much that I would want to press into with you, but you are also a doctor that has <laughs> lots of things. I do want to make sure that I have time to say a few things directly to you, all in the vein of how much I appreciate you. And I'm both meeting you specifically, but also what you represent, health professionals, believers in health professional roles, because one you all really are filling in this space of a way that God does want to heal. I really do believe that one of the ways that God wants to heal is what we said through doctors, through the medication that he allows the doctors to create. I really do believe that that's one of the methods that God chooses to heal. The story that pops my head that I won't tell the whole one because most of us know it is the story of the person who his town is flooding and he's going up on the roof and he's praying that God would save him and Someone comes by in a boat and they're like, hop on in. He's like, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And someone comes by in a helicopter. He's like, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And then he drowns, goes to heaven. It's like, God, where were you? He's like, I sent a boat in a helicopter. Yes, God can do the miraculous saving. God could have swooped down and picked him up. But in our lives, when we're praying for God to work, sometimes he does it through those physical means. So thank you for your role in that. You are the doctor, the pediatrician to my children. So you have provided physical care to my kids. But the other thing I want to thank you for is, you know, you are living out your faith in this sphere in a way that ends up blessing me and others in a tremendous way. And, you know, you and I haven't talked about COVID a whole lot during this conversation. I will say this. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and in my spheres, I have some who very much, you better get the vaccine right now. And others who are like, I don't know that I'm ever going to get this vaccine. And I was talking to someone who feels very strongly against getting the vaccine and they were processing it. And I don't think they realized that I had already gotten it. And I was wondering if they would have feelings about me once they found out. But there's a level of care between us that it didn't go into a negative place, but they were struggling to understand. And one thing that I shared is that there is a lot of information out there, a lot of good information, a lot of not good information, a lot of confusing information. And it can be very hard to know who to trust and who to believe. And one of the big blessings in my life is having people like you, Danny Avula, Amy Popovich, like names of people that are very much involved in this work that I also know the genuineness of your faith. I know you're not perfect, but I know you are genuinely trying to seek God with your life. And what that does for me is it means I don't have to try to weed through all this and figure out the exact answer. I can still do my research, still navigate, but I also know there are these people that I know are seeking God, that I know that I can trust. You and others have played a really significant role in the current season that we're in. But even at other times, if one of our kids got really sick, I know that if you said something, 
that I could trust that because you're not just coming at it as a doctor. You're not just coming at it as a believer. You're coming at it as someone who has been equipped with both of these spheres that are mingled and not separate. Yeah. And that shapes a more holistic understanding. So I just wanted to say thank you for being you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I genuinely appreciate you. And in the last few minutes, I always have two questions at the end. I'm going to change your first one. I'm going to say them both back to back so that you can just say them in your timing. Usually I ask how someone can find somebody's book or content. I don't know that you've written a book that I know of, right? So instead, um, the first question is, how can people be praying for you and other health professionals? How can they be praying? And then the second question is, is there anything else in your heart or mind that you want to share before you go? Yeah, so the answer to the First question. I think the prayer, when I think of the medical system right now, the entire world is tired, right? This last 18 months or now it's longer than 18 months. It's just tired. Like it's been a tiring two years. The medical field, for all the reasons that I think most everyone would agree with, has physically and mentally probably borne a lot of uh, a disproportionate amount of that fatigue, just as far as day to day life goes. And you can like feel it, I would say even like three or four months ago, just when we we're hitting sort of the year and a half mark and the Delta spike occurred, it was just a different, like the fatigue, the emotional, spiritual, physical fatigue played out in a way that I had not seen until then. There was just so much more anger, frustration, all the things everyone was feeling like within the medical field, it was like on steroids and in- inside of me as well. And so the prayer for that is both for strength and for patience, because while there may be understandable reasons for that to be occurring, uh, there is a need for us to still be caring and patient with the people individually and the communities we're taking care of. And I think that is wearing thin. So I think that is an important part. And I think the other thing is for continued understanding of people and patients who for whatever reason, have a different perspective on what the best course of action is and for the ability to see everyone like as children of God, regardless of where they stand on this issue or whatever, right? And that is the truth. Like that's the truth, regardless of whether or not I emotionally feel that that is the truth. And so what I pray for myself and for everyone is that we would be seeing each other that way. As we have our conversations and we decide what we want to do, that we would continue to treat and see each other as, as God's beloved. Just because we're on this COVID thing, like what what would I like to say? I think one of the things that's really important, and I'm going to talk about it in terms of COVID, but this is really just about preventative medicine in general, right? I think drawing analogies can sometimes be helpful when we are spinning on like, seems complicated to understand. And so like, give me something simpler that maybe has some parallels, right? And all analogies break apart at some point, but I think this one is probably the best one that I've heard, and I think sharing it is helpful. We buy cars now, and they all have seatbelts, and they all have airbags. And whether or not you believe it should be a law to wear seatbelts, it is a law. And I'm not even going to get into mandate versus non-mandate, but it's just like, you know, we've decided, and the data has shown that seatbelts and airbags generally are helpful. Like, the statistics are clear. My parents grew up in an era where there were no seatbelts. And there are even times when people from that era would be like, why are they making me wear seatbelts, right? Which is an understandable question because very few people relative to the whole population actually died or got injured in bad car accidents, but a large number did. And since we've put airbags and seatbelts in, it is a much smaller number. It has still not stopped everyone. We still have deaths and bad injuries and car accidents, but it has dramatic. I mean, if you can just 
look up any graph. You, you can just Google car accident deaths in America over time, and you can just see what happened when we started using seatbelts or mandating seatbelts and added airbags. And there are even times where I might get in a car accident or someone I love might get in a car accident. And because of the specifics of that car accident, it might have been better for them not to have a seatbelt on. And that's terrible. It is terrible for that person. It is terrible for that person's family. Again, some accidents might have been better if you actually got thrown out the window because of the way the accident occurred or the car lit on fire or whatever it is. No scientist and no, I think most people would understand, we should not then say, hey, this person died because they had their seatbelt on. We should stop wearing seatbelts. I would understand if someone said that emotionally, but I would sort of know, all right, they're not connecting rational dots. Like I understand why they feel that way, but it's not a rational connection, right? Because the data shows that the majority of people are helped, even though a few people might be hurt by it. In the same way, preventative medicine of any sort is looking at populations in that way, right? And so whether that's COVID vaccine currently or other vaccines that we give kids, the data is clear. And it doesn't mean that everyone is protected. And it also doesn't mean that sometimes the intervention itself might cause a problem. The issue is how much is it helping versus those cases. I just think it's important for people to like think about that. I think the other thing about COVID or contagious disease in general is it's not just that you're making a choice to protect or not protect yourself, right? It's that potentially if you have said contagious disease, if you can decrease the chances of you getting it, it's also decreasing the chances of the person sitting next to you getting it. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to get it, but if it's decreasing the chances at all, then that has a cumulative effect across the population. And at some level with contagious diseases, when we can find ways to prevent it, we are protecting one another. And specifically, we're protecting that population that I talked about that I take care of that is just much more likely to not do well if they get the contagious disease. And I think it's important as Christians that we really understand that framing. And then one last thing, I do think it's really important. Scientists, doctors can be wrong, will be wrong, have been wrong. And there have also been times where those same populations have done that intentionally, like have known that they were wrong and still did it. And obviously things like the Tuskegee experiments with syphilis, you know, this is not distant history. This is in the last 50 years. And I think, you know, I would say even the the pharmaceutical world is a world. In all of those worlds, we have to also understand that there is temptations around money and power uh, that are very understandable. And to like say, no, 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 that's not going to happen. This is just, I just disagree with. I think those are all plausible for us as human beings. The most recent example I would say is at a population level has been the opioid epidemic, right? And what pharmaceutical companies sort of did. But then there is a question. So they can make mistakes. There should be questions. People should ask questions. Scientists should be able to answer those questions and probably ongoing forever. We should never, scientists, doctors should never be given like a free, like, hey, you just get to. But one of the ways to know if a human being, I think, or a system is purposefully doing something sinister to its customers is to look and see if the people who are producing whatever the product is are giving it to their own children. It does not mean that it's not sinister. It's just that they don't know it's, it's bad. Like if someone's giving something to their own child and then asking you to give it to their own child, it might still hurt their own child and it might still hurt your child, but they believe it's going to help their child. They're not I know this is bad and I'm just going to like in order to whatever, make whatever money or get to whatever end, I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice my own child or my own family members. 
And I think that's really like in a world where there is a lot of conspiracy theory out there around COVID and other stuff. I think it's just an important question for people to ask from the conspiracy theory standpoint. Does that make sense? Does not mean that people still could be making mistakes, but are they knowingly making mistakes? And almost everyone who is telling people to get the vaccine is getting the vaccine for themselves and giving it to, I'm talking about scientists, doctors, pharmaceutical reps, whatever, the people who are doing the science. They're doing it to their own children. They're doing it to their own grandparents. They're doing it to themselves. They are human. They are fallible. But I think that usually gives you a good sense of whether a person or a system believes in what they're doing or sort of doesn't believe it, but wants to sell the product, right? And so when you look at all the other, when you look at drug dealers, when you look at people who are selling porn, when you look at people who even are selling terrible snacks or foods that are really unhealthy for us, they're usually not giving it to their own children, especially not in the quantities that they're trying to sell it to the rest of the world, right? So they're making money off of something that they know is dangerous. I would say even social media, like the majority of people who are running social media companies do not let their own children get on said social media, even though they are selling it to children. So it's a very quick way of knowing someone knows the bad. And I think that's just important. Ramesh brings up a simple and yet common situation to press us into a hard theological question. If I have a headache, how do I respond as a believer? Do I pray and expect God to remove the headache to heal me? Or do I take medication like ibuprofen, knowing that that will heal me? Does the former forbid the use of any medication? Does the latter indicate a lack of faith? And what do we do when we go from something as simple as a headache to something as intense as cancer? There's an intriguing comment by the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Timothy. Now, the Apostle Paul is one who was healed miraculously many times, whether it was after being stoned and left for dead, or even bitten by a poisonous snake and shocking the locals who thought he was surely going to die. 1 Timothy, as he's writing his letter, he says in chapter 5, verse 23, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And there's so much in this one verse that's relevant to this conversation. Out the gate, the Apostle Paul is essentially prescribing wine for his stomach ailments. But on top of that, we see something else. It says, and your frequent illnesses. In other words, Timothy wasn't just ill and in need of healing. He was frequently ill. And Paul, who was filled with faith and who knew the power of miraculous healing, gave the advice that he should take a little wine. So at the very least, theologically, we can see here that there are instances where something prescribed is just as faithful as bold prayers. But that's not even the most important thing that we can get from this conversation. One of the most important things that we can get from this conversation is there are real people made in the image of God, like Ramesh, who have been in really intense situations, not just their whole careers, but in the last couple years. And I'm glad God gave me that nudge to ask Ramesh how we can be praying, because he made it very clear that prayer is needed, that many doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals are in really difficult spaces right now, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And the rest of us have an opportunity 
to stand with them, to care for them by praying for them, by hearing them, by understanding them. And regardless of what you believe about vaccines and about pandemics, these are real people made in the image of God who are in need of love and prayer. So yes, there are opportunities for us to process this tension between faith and science, this tension between healing prayers and medication. But on top of that, we have an opportunity to pray for those who are standing in the midst of that tension daily, who are trying to navigate it as authentic believers whose studies have revealed that God may decide to work through the physical. So right now, I want you to think of a healthcare professional that you might know in your own circles, in your own life, in your own church, in your own community. I want you to think of them by name, and I want you to take a moment to pray for them, to pray for their healing, physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, to pray for that patience, to pray for that strength, to pray for that wisdom, and to simply just pray that they would know that they are loved, that they are seen, and that they are cared for. Because the yoke of these last two years have been heavy for healthcare professionals, but Christ can come alongside and help carry that weight. And if you're feeling bold enough, maybe contact them and ask if you can pray directly for them because God very well may want to use you to bring a healing today in their lives. So genuinely, authentically, pray for that healthcare professional. Pray not just once, but often, and then watch for what God may do in your own heart. And then ask yourself, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, Uh, Think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of their music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?